This morning's reading of Scripture comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is God's word. By way of review, I'd like to just kind of quickly give you the overview of of where we're at with John, set the stage, if you will, and then um, basically hit a passage of Scripture that just destroyed me this week, um, which is a good thing um, in a terribly wonderful way. Um, last week in 1 John uh, 4, where we talked about testing the scriptures, I looked forward to preaching that. I, I love just that idea. Um, that's my critical nature, if you will. But this passage this week um, just struck me in the heart, and so I'm going to hopefully share that with you, um, God willing, by spirit. So just so we understand, the Apostle John, uh, basically one of Jesus' best friends, uh, is now... Uh, fairly old, and uh, or the Bible says stricken in years, and he is uh, the pastor and also known as, Jesus called him a son of thunder, so he's got power and passion and wisdom, and he's writing to churches in, in and around Ephesus where it's been reported that former members have turned into basically false teachers, and they have successfully left and built a new kind of church down the street, and uh, this new fellowship has a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different spirit, and they are calling uh, the people who are going to it to live uh, a different way than the old church led by the old apostles. And so John, as the last living eyewitness to Jesus, uh, the man who touched and heard and all these things, throws down his kind of authoritative card of, I'm an apostle, let me tell you what the truth is. And he does just that. And he tells the church, uh, as we saw last week, to test what these guys are teaching and test what these guys are doing to see whether it is the Spirit of Christ that is behind their message and their method or if it is the Spirit of the Antichrist, Spirit of Error, and many other evil things that he calls it. And the implication is that even though these guys, um, in what they say or do, might make people feel good, 
uh, might make them popular. They may have some level of success. Uh, they may have got the approval of all kinds of things. If it doesn't align with the Word of God, then it is not God-glorifying and it is uh, sinful and there's a problem. And so, this week, uh, I don't know how you responded to uh, last week's sermon. I know that um, after I preach, uh, I typically beat the snot on myself for what I didn't say or should have said. But for this week, I really tested myself or tried to just ask myself some questions about what are some of the ideas some of the thoughts, some of the things that have led to behavior that I do, or I think, that I feel that maybe have been from spirits that actually aren't aligned with uh, God's Word. And it's not the things I think as much as what my behavior shows that I think or I feel. Um, now, all that to say it was a very convicting week. And I was asked some very difficult things that God has been processing with me for some time, and Quite, I, I say this with all sincerity, I don't feel very qualified to preach this sermon because I've determined that when it comes to loving others, um, I, have, I feel that I have not loved very faithfully. doesn't mean I'm not a nice guy or I'm not kind, but in terms of loving as I ought, I don't think I've loved faithfully. Um, I have loved conveniently. I have loved comfortably. I have even loved level-headedly. I've loved thoughtfully at times, but I'm not convinced that I have loved faithfully. And I think as I look at the kind of story of, of my life, for the most part, I've lived and continue to live a pretty safe life. Um, and that doesn't mean I've never made faithful decisions. I think I've made one major one that you might point to, which was to leave teaching and go be a pastor. But other than that, ain't much there. And I can only check that box and point to that for so long and, and think that I'm faithful either before or after that one decision. Um, this week, God has asked me some very hard questions. And I say God. It hasn't been people. It hasn't been um, anything other than God about my love for others. And it's bringing me to the place where I have to start questioning my love for him, really, because I think that's what it boils down to. Uh, it seems then, you know, as J- James was right, not everyone should be preachers and teachers, um, because it seems like whenever I have to preach something, I have a really crappy week with that something, okay? So, like, I'm supposed to preach on loving people. Let me just tell you how unloving I was uh, to people, i.e. my family, uh, this week, I got to a place where I was walking home with my eldest son, and I just had to ask his forgiveness because I felt like I hadn't um, been very loving towards him. And he goes, God bless his soul. He said, uh, well, why do you think that is, Dad? <laughs> and I go, well, and he's like, I mean, what, what happened? Like, what happened to the situation? I said, honestly, it had nothing to do with anything outside of me, Fisher. It had to do with something inside of me. It's called sin. And... I said, I'd love to be able to blame it on you, <laughs> you know. I'd love to be able to blame it on lots of things, but um, I can't. And I found out this week, and I have confessed, that I loved myself very well. But I did not love others very well. In fact, I did so very poorly. So that hasn't helped that throughout the letters, John has not ceased to say that the Spirit of God will move Christians to 
love one another just as Christ loved. It is the very mark of what characterizes a disciple. Fan-flippantastic for my week. And I, well, John, I should say, went on to say, just in case I didn't understand, that the failure to love our brothers and sisters is not simply regrettable or unfortunate. He actually says it's quite evil. In fact, it's so evil, he compares it to the self-loving son of Adam and Eve, Cain, who murdered his brother. That doesn't make me feel very good. So it must be true. So I've been asking uh, recently, not just this week, but especially this week, whether there might be a difference between a Christian and a disciple. And which one I am. I threw that up on Facebook so others could join me in that misery of asking that hard question. Um, Because lots of people claim to be a Christian. I claim to be a Christian. And I just wonder if there's a difference between that and a disciple for myself. This is an ongoing conversation that I've had with God for about six months to a year. Um, And he hasn't allowed me to uh, look past it. Um, So I'll let you eavesdrop a little bit on, on my conversation with him, which is basically today's sermon. And not in an effort for you to come afterwards and convince me otherwise. Oh no, you're very loving. You're very faithful. I, I, it's, well, I could really care less what you think. It's what God thinks, and he has uh, caused me to think by asking me some hard questions. But I've come to realize and be frightened by the fact that in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of you, in the eyes of many, I could be considered a successful Christian and a successful pastor and not actually love people. That's a frightening thought for me, and a convicting one. I think, um, I'm trying to get to the root of it, our failure to love, and our failure to be empathetic, and our failure to be compassionate, and our failure to be generous, and our failure to be kind, especially to those who desperately need love, but we have such trouble giving it to them because we don't think they deserve it, is not rooted in a wrong view of people. I actually believe it's um, not about people at all. It begins with a wrong view of God, and especially a wrong view of His love. And so, I actually am convinced, and have become more than convinced, that a deep-hearted conviction about who God is, who God has revealed Himself to be uh, in Scripture, whether that be uh, love, whether that be he is merciful, whether that be he is good, to, to accept that God actually is good, and that good as in whatever he approves is good, accept that he is wise, that he always makes the right decision, he always gives you what is good and what is right, to come to that conviction that he is the perfect embodiment of those things changes everything radically. And that it changes our the way we experience trials, the way we see every circumstance, every interaction, the way every thought comes to us, I think the way every decision is made. Because our our life is either governed by the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. Or maybe 
Better stated, it's either governed by a conviction and a belief in the character of God or in the character of our circumstances. One or the other. Today's passage makes one of the most bold, powerful, I think incredible statements about the character of God. And it's also one of the most perverted and misunderstood in all of Scripture. And it's a statement that I think many of us have probably read before, many have thought before, and we've just continued on without really engaging in it and sitting on it and asking what it means to the place where it might actually change us. And I think if it doesn't change us, we either don't believe it or we don't understand it. So my hope is that we will accomplish both today. But it says in the first couple verses that, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, if we can just stop thinking about ourselves for 20 minutes, okay, it'll be a little longer, 20 minutes, but 20 minutes, even about whether or not we are loving people, because that's kind of where you, you see verses like this, and you're like, oh, am I loving them? Okay, just for a second, and let us just consider God. Let us just stop and consider the Lord of the universe, the one without beginning, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who has a name for each of the billions of stars that are there. The one who told the oceans where to stop. The one who doesn't change. The one who has no limits. Nothing can limit him. The one outside of time. The one who knows everything, past, present, and possible. Sit on that one. That. Him. John says, this God is love. He does not, that being God, does not try to embody love or to be loving. He doesn't aspire to be loving any more than he aspires or tries to be eternal. Right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's not like learning and trying to know everything. He doesn't try to have no beginning. That's who he is. He doesn't like, I'm going to work out to be the most powerful being there is. He is. Just as he is love. It, he himself is love. It's very tempting for us to to think about that, to hear that and go, okay, what does that mean? And begin to understand or define that by how we experience love in this world. But John doesn't say God, I'm saying he says God is love. He doesn't say love is God. That's how we approach it. We think anything that we try to label loving must be what God is like. But if we define love by starting with men, starting with creation, and how we experience it, I guarantee you will end up with a perverted, twisted, broken view of love that falls well short of God. Love, sometimes we try to define love by how I love. Like, okay, what is loving? Well, it's just how I love. And what that typically degenerates into is the kind of love that is easiest for me, that is most convenient, or that is 
gain me the approval or the best response. That's what loving must be. And when someone says, well, that's not loving, you go, okay, it must not be because that made you mad, so I won't. that must be love or not. And then sometimes we define love not by how it's easiest for us, but how people, others, have loved us. And that's an exercise in pain and futility as well. And the reason why is because if we just define love by how others have loved me, that becomes influenced or dictated by whether or not we've been abused, whether or not we've been abandoned, or whether or not we've just been worshipped by people. We go, well, that must be love because that's made me feel good, or that's not love because that's made me feel bad. Both of those standards end up with a very unbiblical, ungodly, unglorifying view of love, and you typically see that in saying, when you begin to find love by love never does this, love always does this. And love always is like how I love because it's easiest. And love never is, um, never do that to me again because that wasn't loving. God's love is not like anything we see in this world. It is otherworldly. It is difficult for us to comprehend, but he's given us a glimpse of it. In fact, a very big picture of it. He did create us in His image, and as image bearers, right, we have the capacity to love. It's not like we're just hateful people all the time. We have the capacity to love. We have certain attributes that God has imbued into us. We can be merciful as He is merciful. We can exhibit justice as He is just. We can be wise as He is wise. But that's always as a fallen creature. That's always in a way that quite frankly, is a perverted version of what is perfect. It's always falling short. God's love is holy, and we are not. God's love is perfect. So I recently read a book. It's a quick read. I think the women are doing a study on it called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And the kind of books I don't really like to read. I like to read books like by really old dead guys, and that you have to read like the same page three times because you're not really sure what they said. Those are the kind of books I typically read. But I flew through this, and it was one of those books that you just read at the right moment and the right time, and it hits you in the right way. And in the first chapter, he challenges his readers to stop praying for a moment and just look at God. Stop praying, like stop talking for a moment and look at God. Take a hard, deep, intentional look at Him. And if if we fail in our communing with God, in our prayer to God, if we fail to actually understand who we are talking to, we may say something or ask something very foolish. Stop and look at God for a second. And awe of God, I believe, is the heart, or is where the heart of worship is supposed to be and begins. And I wonder if the same thing goes with love. Like before we love, before we start giving money to people and hugging people and saying loving things to people, we stop for a moment and look at God and His love. And let that change us before we even endeavor to love anybody. 
He says, John does, that God shows us what his love is like. In verse 9 he says, in this the love of God was made manifest. In this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the cross, the reality of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, dying a couple thousand years ago on the cross is the expression of love. Not something that is just loving. The standard of love. And it is, if God is love, the very heart of God there. The very character. What is God like? The cross. The cross defines it. And it's, let's be honest, it's the kind of love that is foolish, not so crazy, radical, mysterious, impossible, strange. It's an amazing, incredible love that no one saw coming. And before we can love our neighbors, before we can even try and think about loving our enemies, before perhaps we can even love our brothers, we have to fall in love with God's love. We've got to see it. And that is God Himself. And if we take a deep look at God and His love, we see a God who does not need love. God that does not love out of obligation or deficiency. We see a God who does not love halfway or only when it's self-serving. We see a God who doesn't make excuses and never ever falls short in whom He chooses to love. But there's so much more. I think we look at the cross, and I, again, I speak from my own heart, and we go, man, that's really loving. I need to do, be a sacrificial like that. And we move on. Consider God's love story, okay? It's, it's, it's not the kind of love story we think of. We actually believe, this will maybe surprise you, that we're the point of the love story. Like, we're the little princess. Jesus is the knight. comes and saves us. And that does happen. But we have to understand that that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the glory of God. That's the point of the story. It's to make much of God, of His love, of His beauty, of His power. Of His... It's about God. The redemption of man is the tool through which He tells the story. It's an amazing, beautiful, I am thankful for the benefit of the story. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is God. And the story goes like this, in case you didn't know it. The God of the universe, who has no beginning, knows the story he's going to write before he even writes it. It's not like he's writing, he's like, oh, I'm going to do this, okay? And takes it down an interesting trail that's fun and creative. He writes the story before he creates anything. And he has a plan to love his children, his creation, 
before they even exist. He tells Jeremiah that, I knew you before you were even in the womb. So he has a plan to love his kids, and he creates a good world. And it's not a good world like, well, that's good. It's like good from God's perspective, right? And he knows everything. He knows what good is. He's like, boom, perfect, amazing. Boom, that's good. And it's full of good stuff. And he creates men and women, Adam and Eve, to live in this world and to take care of this world and to love the world and to love loving it. Work is enjoyable. Eating, drinking is enjoyable. Relationships, enjoyable. It's all good. And God's like, this is fantastic. And God chooses to love this world and to be involved in it. And for a time, we're not sure how long. It seems pretty short. It's like Genesis 1-2, fall, right? But for a time, there's love, there's fellowship. They, men and women have everything they can need or want, and they have God and an awesome relationship with Him until they choose no longer to love Him. And they choose to reject His Word. Exactly. And the world falls. But God doesn't change. He's not like, oh, didn't see that coming. He's not surprised. He'd already chosen. If you choose, if you create a world with an intention before the world is created to exhibit grace, you plan for sin. So he'd already chosen to love these people. He'd already chosen to love creation, though he knew they would choose to be unlovable. Time goes on. And God continues to love these people and He takes a man named Abraham. You probably know the story. And He raises up one of His grandsons named Jacob. He renames Israel. And through this people Israel, God loves though they're unlovable. We like to think that they're like some amazing people. Read Deuteronomy chapter 7 where God says, you're loving or lovable people because I chose to love you. There's nothing fantastic about you. But He loves these people and He Though they reject him, he continues to love these people. And after several chapters, lasting several thousand years, of God loving unlovable people, God somehow still loves, and he sends his son. And he sends his son to die. And here, at the climax of God's love, that he's foreshadowed through all the story of this is going to come, His son lives sinlessly, dies incredibly, and then is risen from the dead. And it's a love that you go, oh my gosh. If we see who it is who's dying, if we see the people whom he's dying for, this love is crazy. This love is foolish. This love is mysterious. This love is undeserved and Who would do that? That's not how I would write the story. That's not how I would love. That's not how I love right now, what we should say. But let's just break it down, because if you just look at that snapshot, you go, Jesus loves me, okay, and you move on. What's actually going on there? So I have 47 points to tell you. No, just kidding, I don't. 
I have 12 statements. That makes it easier. See, you give them a big number, and you go, I have 12. If I said 12 first, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's not three. Okay? 47. Oh, that's not. No, only 12. Okay? So the first, right, listen to this. Think about this. We're just describing God's love. First of all, in Jesus, we see that God's love's intentional. What's that mean? It means he initiates it. It's not just love out of response to someone loving back. I'm really good when someone says, I love you, oh, I love you too. I'm really bad at saying I love, like, the first one. That's me. I stink at it. He initiates love. He's intentional about love. He finds places to love. I typically wear blinders trying to avoid that I might see somebody I could love. Maybe you do that. Maybe you don't. In Jesus, we see that love is selfless. It is more humble than we will ever, ever, ever comprehend. This is the God of... Okay, Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the possessor of all there is to possess, the receiver, and it is due, the glory and fame that could be due anybody, an extreme amount. The zenith, more than anything. Power, wealth, gives it all. Humbles himself, puts it aside. He's so other-oriented. It's selfless. You have to ask, why didn't God just kill them all? Why didn't when Adam and Eve eat, go, that's it, done? Love. Love, in Jesus we see that God's love is enduring. What's that mean? Well, think about this. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned and failed, they didn't, he didn't send Jesus that day. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. Kill Jesus. Okay, covered, let's move forward. It was enduring. It was long-suffering. It was thousands of years when this incredibly foolish, complex plan that only God could have put together, it was planned for. Like, I'm going to love, and it's going to take... I mean, we can't get planning to love beyond five minutes. And God has this incredible story, this long story, all pointing to Jesus, and boom, like, whoa! How patient is that? In Jesus, see, love is sacrificial, and again, there is no sacrifice any of us could make that is more than Jesus made. It's incomparable. It's costly. It's self-denying. It is immeasurable. It's a love that's sacrificial. And in Jesus, we see a love that's gracious. It's not loving only lovable people. It's... There are no lovable people. There are none that are deserving. And we walk around, let's be honest, judging everything we see of whether someone deserves love or not. Man, you are too broken, stinky, teeth missing, just not like me. I can't love you because you just aren't lovable. The problem is, you don't see yourself as broken, missing teeth, ugly, broken, stinky, all those things. That's the problem. You don't see how much love you didn't deserve, how much grace has been shown to you. 
That's the love of God. In Jesus, He love is generous. He didn't just do a little bit, just enough. He gives abundantly. He gives more than enough. We see Jesus, God's love is relentless. Nothing was going to stop Him. Not your sin, not mine, not the sin of the Romans, not the sin of the Pharisees. Nothing was going to stop Him. Not the devil. Nothing. He nonstop pursued. You think of all the things that Jesus experienced. The betrayal, the mockery from His family going, you are a fool. The impossible odds. His own disciples asking Him stupid questions. Right? Going to Jerusalem. Weeping over the city. A city that would praise Him at the beginning of the week and condemn Him at the end of the week. Nothing was going to stop Him. In in Jesus we see a God whose love is healing. It's not just sentimental. It's not just good thoughts. It's not just cards. It is life-giving. It's life-giving. We need to ask ourselves, sometimes we love and we check that box and we actually do something for an individual that isn't actually healing to them. It might actually hurt them. God's love is healing. Gives us exactly. It's also intimate. I love that God, when you, in Jesus, you have God Himself coming out and suffering like us, living like us, experiencing everything like us. You know I'm going, hey, um, Jehoshaphat, the angel, why don't you come down and we'll send you down, we'll equip you, and you will save everybody. God steps into it Himself. He didn't write a check to an angel to go do something. He didn't pray, I hope a hero rises somewhere. How many times have you seen suffering? It's come across your path, and you had opportunity, and you went, Lord, I hope you send someone to help them. Bless them, God. Somehow bless them as you walk by. It's like looking at the guy in the ditch as you walk by, going, gosh, I hope someone gets that guy out. God was personally intimate and invested. Last couple in Jesus, we see God's love is deep. It's a love that engages the heart. It's a love that meets a true need. It's not surface level. We also see, I think maybe most importantly for our world, in Jesus that a love that's true. He's the propitiation for our sins. True love confronts sin. True love loves some, someone so much they don't want them to remain in their sin. It's not loving to be tolerant. It's loving to be gracious. It's not loving to go, you know what, we'll just kind of press the reset button, not deal with it. God doesn't say, we're just going to forget about it. He says, no, we're going to deal with it because it's wrong, it's evil, and we are going to punish it, but I'm going to take that punishment. Incredibly gracious, but incredibly true. And then finally, I think more importantly, perhaps the most importantly, in Jesus we see God's love, and we see a love that is faithful. What do I mean by that? Jesus' love on the cross 
was primarily motivated not for a love for those who would believe. It was primarily motivated by a love for God. As we endeavor to love, we need to remember that. We don't love in hopes of blessing as much as we love in hopes of glorifying. Very big difference. Because if you only love in terms of blessing, you will predict or determine whether or not it's valid, good, or worthwhile opportunity to love based on the result. But if the result and the goal and the purpose is simply to glorify God, you will love very differently. You will love foolishly, even if there's a negative, foolish result. I do think I personally, in my life, and God, for whatever reason, has decided to reveal it to me more clearly, I take God's love for granted. Partially because I don't see how ugly and unlovable I am. And partially because I am easily wooed by the love of the world. Very easily. We see a God here who gives us everything that there is to give. And many of us say that we love Him, and yet I refuse to live a radical life of faith because the truth is I love myself more than Him. And my stuff. And even my family. A great question um, was asked by Francis Chan in this book that I read that floored me. I might have Facebooked this one too because I like to share, as I said, my misery. And it was a question about faith and I'll ask it here, and again, this is, I'm just the messenger. If you suddenly stop believing in God right now, or let me rephrase it, if you suddenly stopped loving God, as the faithful supposedly do, right now, would your life look much different? Would your life look much different? And I fear I've taken God's love for granted in that I have embraced it, as many, many of us probably have, as an identity. Like, you know, I'm, an, I'm a Christian, but not as a way of life as a disciple. I mean, do we believe in the love of Jesus that's so radical it transforms who we are, but also who, how we live? And I can't get away from these two passages that have hit me and what they actually mean in terms of my love for God or my love for whatever. Luke 9 and Luke 14, they pretty much say the same thing, but it's Jesus saying it twice. Luke 9, 23 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For it would save his life, or love his life, would lose it, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it or love it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or Luke 14, 
26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, contrasting love and hate, not that you actually intentionally hate them, but if you contrast the love for God and the love for the world. He says, if you don't love me like that, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Radical love has a radical cost. Following Jesus has a radical cost. It's a different way of living. And it is not for everyone in that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be transformed by God. But if we could just stop thinking about all the people and the things in the world that we love for a moment and turn and see the love that God has for us, my goodness, all the sin, all the brokenness, all the times we have loved ourselves more than others, all the times that, that we have hated people, God has forgiven that. God has cleansed that and loved us, though we are ugly and broken and undeserving. To sit in that. How can we not be awed by the love of God? I do believe our problem is not a radical love for people, but a radical devotion to God. And, and many of us believe, I think, that we love God and just we, we don't. Because if we love God, our love for the brothers look, and, and just people, not just Christians, looks very different. It looks foolish. It looks mysterious. It looks radical. It looks like otherworldly. People go, why would you do that? And verse 11 says, if God so loved us, as if then, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. Many of us are believing I think wrongly. And I I am in this exact same boat. I'm just asking myself, do I actually love as I ought? So here's another question for us. If you believe you are loving radically, foolishly, in in the spirit of Jesus, if you suddenly stopped loving your brother your neighbor, right now. Who would feel it? Who would feel it? Would your life look much different? Would the life of someone else look much different? My prayer is that if our church were to disappear tomorrow, if you were to disappear tomorrow, that it would be felt. That the absence of love would actually be felt and I don't say this so that we sit and go, oh my God, this is a terrible love. You know, I can just beat the snot out of ourselves. Guess what? Grace. Christ is forgiven. Christ is cleansed. And we hold on to that, which empowers us to want to love even that much more. You will never love as you ought. You will always fall short of God. And that is why we always go back to the cross. But we don't stop loving it pushes us to love more, more radically, more foolishly. As it was with Jesus, our radical love for the brothers is not motivated by the affection for people. 
The goal of our love is the same of the cross. It's not to simply bless people. But it's to glorify God through blessing. It's motivated by and rooted in the glory of God. And then you can't fail. Although no one has seen God, John says, in some sense, our love for one another, a love for people, proclaims His very presence. It brings the kingdom into reality for people to see. The nature of God to see through our love. It's a proclamation. And John says that that spirit of radical love is given to us at salvation. When we confess the truth of Jesus, it is connected with the love that starts to bleed through us because Jesus is the one doing it through us. Our love is an incredible sermon to the world. We preach it to the world. And like any good sermon, this is the truth. You should not seek to remember the guy speaking. You should not seek to remember the funny jokes. You should not seek to remember the illustrations. You should leave any sermon that is a spirit-filled sermon, and I have failed at this, I'm sure, thinking about God, being awed by the love of Jesus, and walking out and going, Jesus, my Lord and my God. And so, I can rest as I preach if everyone plugged their ears. If everyone slept. If everyone got up to go potty 15 times to get coffee because you just don't want to hear the good parts. I understand that, right? Doesn't matter. Because my motivation, my joy comes in proclaiming, just as it does in evangelism. We proclaim the benefit is salvation, but if it doesn't happen, it's still successful. Because I'm glorifying God. That's the motivation. It's the motivation for preaching. It's the motivation for my love. So if I love and people hate it, if I love and it doesn't produce anything, doesn't matter. I'm motivated by glorifying God, by making much of Jesus. So when I love, same as a sermon. Oh, Sam, I can't believe you gave so much to me. No! Failure! Wrong problem! It should be Jesus. Why do you love me like this? Jesus loved me. I don't deserve this, neither did I. That's the motivation of our love, which transforms everything. If we love to try and impress people, if we even love just to try and bless people, you're motivated by the wrong thing. We love because He loved us. That is our motivation. And as the Spirit of God abides in us, we not only preach to others, guess what? We preach to ourselves. It says love of God is perfected in us. I do believe that as we love like God, we begin to love loving like God. We begin to look, I think, more like Jesus. We begin to see people differently, stuff differently, opportunity differently. We have causes for joy that are different. We see sources of hope differently. We begin to see ourselves as working with God, for the glory of God, to restore love in this life. First in our own hearts, but as He does that, 
we begin to see ourselves as true citizens of the kingdom, ambassadors of love in every situation that we're in, we begin to be changed. So love is not just revealing, but love is sanctifying and changes. And We need to evaluate how we love, our love, why we love. And whether or not there might be a difference between a Christian and a disciple and which one we are. And for me, I've asked myself some crazy snarf questions. I mean, stuff that you go, well, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do this. I'm not going to rest on the fact that I happened to leave an occupation I loved to go do something that I loved, but it was difficult and go, well, I did my faith decision a long time ago. Now it's time for you guys to be faithful. I'm asking myself some hard questions about whether I'm a Christian or a disciple, whether there's a difference. We need, if we truly love God, to position ourselves with the goal of radical love, the kind of love where we have to trust God, where love for God puts us in a place like, dude, I'm going to depend on on faith in God for this. It's going to be amazing. It's totally foolish, totally crazy, but I'm doing it. And John emphasizes that it is the Holy Spirit. He is the means through which we're even capable of loving like Jesus. But what does that love look like? I don't know. It looks different for all of us because we're all in different situations. But it might mean you selling more, it might mean you giving more, it might be you serving more, it might be sacrificing more, it might be feeding people more, it might be downsizing, it might be helping, it might be sharing, it might be leaving on a mission. It might be moving. It might be endeavoring to adopt. It might be launching some ministry. It might be planning a church. It might mean helping the homeless. It might mean going down and meeting with the elderly and just blessing them and loving them, though they're not going to help necessarily do anything for you. It might mean caring for the disabled. It might mean a lot of things. But it means using what God has given you, time, talent, energy, something to love Him faithfully. To be honest, that is why God hasn't killed you yet. He's left you here. He could have taken you. Which means He's saying, you still have more to do. You have a mission that I'm kind of inviting you to be on. And whatever it is, whatever it looks like, one thing I do know, it's going to look foolish it's going to be somewhat mysterious and it's going to be somewhat radical for you. And many will say, well, I can't do that, 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 or that. And I just simply say, why not? What do you love more than God? What do you fear losing more than God? Do something. Do something. And know that John closes reminding us this, that a love for God is not just a moment, it's a lifetime of moments, not just one thing, it's a series of things. And he tells us whoever abides 
in love, abides in God. And he repeats what he already said in John chapter 2, verse 6, that by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Know this from God, that God has left you here to glorify him. And I believe through love. And let the only thing, I just watched the film The Bucket List, right? I did cry at the end, I'm saying, which, confession, I have actually tear ducts. And as I'm getting older, I'm seeing that they're like becoming bigger or more susceptible to emotional expression. Like, what is this watery discharge? Um, But... All that to say, the bucket list, if you've not seen it, it's, you know, you kick the bucket list, all the things, and they're like, oh, I'm going to drive a car, I want to do this, I want to do this, and honestly, I, I sat, even before I watched the movie, not knowing exactly what it was, saying this, let only one thing be on our bucket list, one thing, and that is to have loved others with the love of God. who have loved others with the love of God. And let us never check that off until the day we die. Or let someone else check it off for us at our funeral. He did that. It's an invitation to be partners, if you will, working for the privilege of a God who loves us. And I pray, I pray that you will consider some hard hard truths that have been beaten up snot out of me. And let us be known as a people and a church that loves. And if taken away tomorrow, there would be an absence of love.